Hello and welcome to Rocket Talk, the Tor.com podcast. We're back after a month-long hiatus. I needed a break to recharge my batteries, but now I'm raring to go. We're going to do some new things here in the new year. Although I don't blog regularly anymore or review, it's where my roots are. And so from now on, on every episode of Rocket Talk, I'll end with me giving some brief thoughts about a book or short story that I read recently and feel like recommending. Uh, so be sure to stick around for that after the interview. Additionally, Rocket Talk has been on the air, so to speak, for almost two years now. This is episode 70. I want to thank you for listening and hope you'll continue to join me. If you feel so inclined, it never hurts to give us a shout out on social media or a review on iTunes. I will love you for it, which is, you know, a thing. But enough of that. Tonight's guest is Megan O'Keefe. Megan is the author of Steal the Sky, her debut novel from Angry Robot Books. Her career began in earnest in 2014 when she won Writers of the Future for a short story titled Another Range of Mountains. Other than writing, she pays the bills making soap, which is frankly pretty hardcore. Welcome, Megan. Hi, thanks for having me, Justin. So you and I met for the first time, I think, in San Antonio three years ago. And was that one of the first conventions that you had gone to, or had you been kind of doing the convention scene before? Yeah, it was the first convention I had ever gone to, so I kind of jumped in the deep end with Bill Connor. Yeah, so I'm curious. So I, I know that at that convention, there were several people there that were kind of uh, uh, oriented around the Reddit sort of table, and I know that you were involved in the Reddit community at one point, which we'll probably talk about later, but uh, that were very interested in meeting agents while they were there. So I have to ask you, did you meet your agent at Worldcon in San Antonio? I did, actually. Um, it was uh, not intentional. Um, I had no idea who it was. We bumped into each other at a party and just started talking. And it was the Nightshade party, actually. And it was, it was a pretty good event. And I found out later through somebody else that he was with Jabberwocky. And I thought, oh, well, I'm glad I had, you know, the nice casual conversation with him before I knew who he was and got all nervous and, you know, freaked out. And then uh, we talked again at Drinks with Authors and kind of set up a, a relationship where I could send him things from that point on. So I sent him uh, the first novel I ever wrote, which um, <laughs> wasn't very good. <laughs> It was it was good enough that um, he he asked me to send him more things after that, but it was my my first attempt, and I sent it to him very shortly after seeing him, and I definitely could have done with some revision beforehand. Still, the sky I wrote um, in between that World Con and uh, uh, Phoenix Comic Con, which was the following year. So it was uh, around March and April that I ended up writing that book. And I revised it over the Writers of the Future weekend, uh, well, week, I should say. And I sent it out that June or July, I want to say, I'm not quite sure. So June or July of 2014. And I heard back from, I, I sent it to Angry Robot and to my agent at the same time. And I heard back from both of them within 24 hours of each other that they wanted to talk to me at World Fantasy when I'd see them there in the following November. I'm curious, we, of, we often hear that like conventions are a great place to network for a writing career, and I think that advice gets offered around a lot, that hey, if you want to write a novel, or you want, or you are writing novels, you should go to some conventions to get to know people. Of course, other people say that's a load of crap, and if you have a good book and you send it around, you'll, you'll sell it. I mean, do you think that kind of doing the convention thing made a big difference for you? Do you think you'd be where you are now without having had that sort of interaction? But what a convention can do for you is make things happen a little faster. Uh, if I hadn't met, say, I'm at World Fantasy, I might not, or at World Con that first time, I might not have been as comfortable approaching him with the book when I did. Um, if I hadn't met Mike 
Underwood at a robot previously, I certainly wouldn't have been comfortable just sending the book directly to him instead of going through the slush pile. So if if you are able to go to the cons, I think it's a good way to find out what editors and agents are interested in, and you can sort of pinpoint their taste a little better and find out more where your work would fit. But otherwise, if you've got a good story, you can, you can sell it. It just might take a little longer. So I mentioned earlier that you you were a contributing Redditor, correct? Yeah, I'm a long-time Redditor. <laughs> yes. Okay, so I want to ask you a little about this a little bit because Reddit has this sort of like reputation, particularly with uh, women and its, and its struggles from time to time with being entirely appropriate. But um, I think sometimes, particularly like Reddit, our fantasy, where I think you spend a lot of your time and I have spent quite a bit of time Maybe that reputation is a little bit unfounded. I mean, how have your experiences been on Reddit? And, like, do you still frequent it? Do you still interact with it a lot? Has it been a big community for you? I think of Reddit as a whole is that it is, it, it is a giant community with many, many sub-communities within it, some of which are insane, frankly. Uh, <laughs> some of which are a little more welcoming of everyone out there. And I think our fantasy is one of those. I personally have never had a problem on our fantasy uh when it comes to just sort of being female and present in the community i've never felt threatened or marginalized for that reason i know people who have unfortunately um but the community tends to come together to sort of protect its own uh, one of the the main rules of the our fantasy subreddit is just don't be a dick basically be kind to everyone and the moderators do not hesitate to call people out on it when they are sort of pushing the line in that regard. The only time I've ever really seen drama sort of spiral out of control in the way that Reddit is unfortunately known to have that happen is during the, the sad puppy argument. Things got a little heated. But otherwise, it's a pretty safe place. Um, I, I'm comfortable there. I still interact there. I'm a little shy, so I'm more of a lurker. But I am still around. Reddit is also a tremendous place to create sort of traffic and interest, and it's definitely a tremendous publicity arm. So have you sort of tried to leverage your good standing in the community yet, being like, hey, here I am, I have a book out? I am a little shy, especially when it comes to promoting myself. Um, but I, I have been very honored um, that members of the community have sort of done that for me. Uh, <laughs> People who know me and know I have a book out have gone to the effort of, of posting the updates, information, that kind of thing on my behalf, which I very much appreciate. And of course, if anybody asks me about the book, I'm happy to talk about it. And I am doing an Ask Me Anything on, I believe, the 13th, whatever, the Wednesday of that week is coming up. You mentioned that, that you can be a little bit shy and, and all that kind of thing. You know, one of the biggest things that we see today from writers is sort of this you know, online profile, having um, a, an online brand, and you keep a relatively low profile online. You're not a super prolific tweeter. You're not a hot take blogger. I mean, have you felt any pressure as a debut novelist to be like, man, I got to get out there more. I got to say some crazy stuff and, or, or that kind of thing? No, not particularly. I leave the same crazy books to Robert Jackson Bennett, and he's pretty good at it. So <laughs> I'll just let him spearhead that movement. But when I see something that um, I'm, I'm upset about or I do want to talk about, I will engage with it. But primarily I do 
uh, keep to myself on most issues. There's, um, I, I work for myself from home, so I have a hard time as it is sort of, you know, saying when work stops and relaxation time begins. So I'm, I try to keep certain aspects of my life um, peaceful in that regard. <laughs> and I, I've been on the internet since I was about 10 years old, so I, I know I can get sucked into, you know, the hours-long forum debates and things like that if I don't watch myself. So I avoid it and spend that time writing instead. <laughs> it's probably a lot more productive. I don't remember at what point in my life I gave up like becoming a forum warrior but man there was a time i used to just i would take any opportunity to go in like full flame war mode it's been a long time it's probably been 10 years since i was really into flame wars but god that used to suck up a lot of time i, I used to be pretty fighting but it's, it's out of my system now. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about your 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 book steal the sky it, it came out uh two days ago three days ago tuesday right yeah the fifth Okay, so it came out on January 5th. Uh, so give us, like, the quick pitch for the book. Uh, two common attempt the heist of an airship, and things do not go as planned. That's, that's, a, that's a very good elevator pitch. I don't actually usually get, when I ask that question, usually it turns into, like, a 16-minute talk, and, like, I have to go back and edit it. Um, so, it's yeah. a, so it's a heist book. Yes. I have to ask, and I, haven't, I have not read... Um, the whole thing yet aren't heist books like really hard to pull off i feel like they're really hard to pull off did you find it hard to pull off they are um i didn't quite realize that going in so maybe just sort of blind hubris pulled me through but <laughs> they are because you have to um you have to work backwards basically from what you want the end result to be and you have to usually write a character who is hopefully a little smarter than me so <laughs> that can be difficult when, like, something, there has to be, like, a twist, right? Or, like, something cool has to happen. I don't know. Like, I think there's, like, the hardest part is either you tell the reader what the plan is, and then something has to go wrong with the plan, or you don't tell the reader what the plan is, and then it all goes sort of to plan. Like, I think yeah. that's a really hard pacing thing right there about how you decide to, what you reveal to your reader and what you don't about the heist. It is, it's hard to do the, um, this sort of movie heist thing where you have them, you, you see them do one thing and then you find out they're actually doing something else in the meantime. I think readers would lose patience if you tried to do that. Mm -hmm. So you gotta, you gotta be forthright while still withholding all the things you need to withhold to make the plot interesting. It's kind of amazing to me that we don't see more heist novels because a lot of sort of new writers or debut writers at this point probably cut their teeth on the Lies of Locke Lamora. I don't know when that came out, like maybe seven or eight years ago. And so when that book came out, I imagine a lot of people said like, ooh, I, that's the kind of book I'd like to write. And so they all, but we haven't seen like a glut of heist novels come onto the market. I wonder if that's part of it because they're, they're just hard. Actually, I hadn't read the, the Lies of Locke Lamora when I wrote Steal the Sky. So I read it afterwards, but... <laughs> but yeah, I was trying to think like before the show, I was trying to think like, man, what other heist books are out there? And I started to kind of think about it and I only, only come up with like, Two or three, you know, Lies of Lacamora. There was like one called The Palace Job by Patrick Weeks, and like that, I was kind of like all I could come up with. There's Mistborn. Oh yeah, Mistborn. That is a heist novel, and a very and a very good one. Yeah. Uh, so in the book, you have these two con men, and it's like a it's a 
it's a buddy relationship, kind of. Um, and I'm always curious, like, we see this trope a ton, right? Like, uh, I mean, obviously, the, the big throwback is Fritz Leiber's Fawford and Grand Mouser, but, like, we always seem to see, like, these, these people in pairs. Uh, why did you decide to have, like, a, a, a pairing like that, or why do you, and why do you think it shows up so much? Well, it's the, the classic sort of comedy do actually, the, you know, the man and straight man kind of situation. Um, it gives your, at least in my case, I have, Dayton's kind of manic and kind of ridiculous, and he's always doing these odd things. And Tibbs, his best friend, is sort of there to, to balance him out and give him a foil and a little bit of a dose of sanity, even. So I think it's, they just make really good foils to have a best friend there. And then you also have, the complications of that friendship and any relationship in the story is going to contribute to the plot and the character's growth and that kind of thing too. So it's an extra opportunity to reveal some of the character's inner thoughts. We have their best friend there to kind of bounce off of. I mean, do you find yourself kind of, I would imagine that if I was writing a duo like that, like one would end up being me, <laughs> kind of, you know, like my own sort of like uh, personality and the other one would be the, I don't know. I feel like I would be the, the buddy. I wouldn't be the main character, but I'd be like the, like the smart ass buddy or something. Do you find yeah. yourself projecting yourself onto one of them? Yeah, I won't say which one, <laughs> but I do. My friends who have read the book and they really quite well will point out things like that's something you would say. <laughs> the character, it's not me. <laughs> it's their favorite characters and claim that I base them off of them. No matter what the characters actually like, if it's their favorite, it, it's totally based off of them. <laughs> if it's flattering, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you submitted this book in Angry Robots Open Sub then, right? It was part of their 2014 Open Sub? Uh, no, actually. I, um, this is part of the convention networking thing since Mike Newton and me, I won Writers of the Future. He asked me to submit before the Open Subs open. So... Well, fancy. I the queue jump a little there. Which, <laughs> as I said, we can make things move faster through the networking. That's right. Uh, so how's it been? Like how? I mean, we've heard a lot of. I mean, obviously, everybody has a lot of good things to say about Angry Robot, but you. So you must have sold this right before Angry Robot had their trouble, or right after Angry Robot had their trouble. Well, it's supposed to be actually their first acquisition after they came back online, as it were. But we did um, some extra negotiations, so it took a little longer. And we ended up, I think that was the second or third they signed after they were bought by Watkins. So, Steel the Sky is the first book in the series, and you have another one under contract? I, they bought three books. I found out they were buying three books, I just sat down. The first thing I did was I, I wrote the last chapter of book three. So, I knew where everyone's arcs were going throughout the trilogy. So, know where I'm going, you know where it's going to end up, and I do have some ideas on where I could take it from there, the opportunity arises. So you're telling us you've, you're you not going to do the George R. R. Martin thing, like you you know where it's going to end. And... Yeah, it won't take me like seven years. <laughs> I don't want you I'm not, I don't want you to throw any shade on George, I'm just saying. I'm just impatient to uh, do the George. <laughs> yeah, boy, that was a, he caught some hell this week. Yeah, I feel sorry for the poor guy. <laughs> I do too. I, I mean, I feel I do feel bad that that he's getting the abuse while at the same time being a frustrated reader simultaneously. It's a weird place to be. Yeah, kind of caught in the middle there. Oh. 
Are you a fan of the song on Ice and Fire or not really? Well, I honestly haven't seen the show, but um, I did like the first book. Since I started writing, my reading time is on a dive, substantially, which is unfortunate, because you, you get into writing usually because you love reading the same sorts. So I haven't been able to keep up as much as I'd like, but I do enjoy what I've read so far. What do you, what do you think your like book content has, or were you like, before you got really serious about writing, how many books were you reading a year versus now? Actually, if I looked at like, my Goodreads account, I was reading about 100 books a year, and now I'm reading about 50. <laughs> That's still pretty good. That's pretty good, yeah. I, mean, I know a lot of writers that, like, if they get through a dozen books in a year, like, that's pretty good, I think, so. The Kindle, honestly, has uh, made consuming books easier for me. I can read, you know, in bed without turning on the light, and I can read on the train with YouTube much easier, so. I credit the Kindle for that. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, the Kindle's awesome, too, because I, I don't know, I find myself reading in really weird places, like in line or something. Exactly. It like, yeah. fits in your purse, or in your case, your purse, or like my pocket, or whatever, Like, and I'll just read at random opportunities. Yeah. So maybe this question will be harder to answer than since you're not reading as much these days, but because this is a debut novel, and because you're like rel- relatively new to sort of like the reader consciousness, if you had to say, like... Uh, Steal This Guy is tonally like something else. You know, what what books would you kind of point to and say, it's not like this, but it's like tonally like this. Like, if you kind of like this type of narrative, you might like my book. The thing it is closest to um, is P.G. Roadhouse, <laughs> which is not fantasy at all. He is a Edwardian-era author, um, did the Rooster and Jeeves books, uh, which were... Um, Actually, I think Steve Fry and Hugh Laurie did a, a BBC TV show of the Rooster and Jeeves series. But they're sort of um, tongue-in-cheek, uh, Lord gets browbeaten into often stealing things with um, his butler as his support. So they are a little similar in tone. I'm trying to think of anything that's actually in genre that would be similar. I, I suppose Last of Lakamora would be the closest example. And possibly Hour of Law, but I confess I have not read it, so <laughs> I've been told it's similar. Yeah, I would think so. I think that's a fair a fair comparison. Uh, obviously, uh, there's. Uh, do you have a lot of puns? Are there puns? There are not any puns. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember any puns from the parts that I read, but uh, Sanderson likes his puns. I mean... The names of his characters are Wax and Wayne, so... Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's a little punny. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Which is like, some people love puns and some people hate puns, so it's like, for every person that you write a pun for, that will buy it, and that would, you know, the other half will be like, I'm never reading that. I found out recently my agent does not, so... <laughs> what? Sam Morgan does not like puns? No, yeah, so he might come to clash over that <laughs> So. I'm actually signing him an email right now and saying, like, how dare you? I, fi- I have a deep and abiding love for the pun. So I-, I describe it as dad humor. Oh, of course. Dad jokes are the best jokes. Yeah, I feel like when I became a father, like, I'm allowed now to be absurdly corny. And it's- well, I'm obviously not a father and I'm absurdly corny, so <laughs> go for it. Well, I'm not saying you can't be. It's not, it's not exclusive to, uh, to middle-aged fathers. I want to talk to you about writers of the future. Okay. Because, well, it's funny, because I have never paid any attention to Writers of the Future. I had no idea what it was until you won. Because I, 
for whatever reason, in the recent years, like I hadn't known anybody that had kind of won. Mm -hmm. So when you won, I was like, oh, I'm going to pay attention to this. And so I like watched the ceremony. Like that puts everything else in genre to shame. It is huge and ridiculous. Um, they... Yeah, they fly you down to Hollywood for a week. You get trained by, you know, Tim Powers and Dave Farland extensively. Um, they bring out the judges. Like Mike Resnick comes down. and He's a night owl, so there's sort of this competition to see who can outlast Mike Resnick at the bar at night as far as staying up late goes. <laughs> so you stay up and you, you try to pick all the judges' brains as much as you can throughout the entire week. And you're up until 3 and 4 in the morning, and then you have to get up for your 9 a.m. classes with Tim and Dave. And it's an insane experience. Yeah. And they, you know, they cram you in formal wear and put you on a giant stage after walking you down the red carpet <laughs> to accept your award. So I've, I have a couple questions. The first of all, from a, uh, an, a learning experience, I mean, as a, as a seminar, was it good? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, uh, Tim and Dave are brilliant as far as um, writing and, and sharing their knowledge of writing. And some people are incredibly brilliant at what they do, but not good teachers. But Dave and Tim are very good teachers. So they're very good at imparting knowledge. Um, I know Nancy Crest came down. She's also very good at imparting knowledge. They're just available to you, too, the whole time. So if you have questions, you can pull them aside and pick their brains as much as possible. And even after the seminar, we have access to them. You can email them anytime to ask questions and that sort of thing. What about like the Writers of the Future class? Like, people that are in your class, do you keep in touch with any of them? Oh, yeah. It's like a lifelong fraternity slash sorority situation. <laughs> we're always keeping in touch with each other. It's such a, it is such a crucible. I mean, you were there, and there is no sleep involved, and you are constantly on. Um, there's one point during the week where you have to write a story in 24 hours and then turn it in and then three people get chosen and be critiqued while you're there by everyone else which I got to be one of those lucky winners um, so <laughs> uh, you can't go through something like that and not have an extreme bonding experience so yeah, I'm, I'm still in touch with all of my fellow winners and we, you get assigned uh, a winner twin while you're there basically like this is what you know, you two bond a little extra and keep an eye on each other kind of situation. So that that's nice. Mine was Lena Lukitalo. She's um, from Finland, actually. So I'm very excited that Worldcon is going to Helsinki. Oh, <laughs> so nice! You have an insider. Yes. <laughs> Are you the first one to sell a novel from your class? Because Randy Henderson, who I love dearly, beat me to it because he sold his before we went to the award ceremony. <laughs> that's right. He's uh, with Tor, right? Yeah, he's a uh, thin fancy necromancy. Yeah, I have a copy of that somewhere. Uh, that's cool. So my next question is, or my next I guess observation, we'll see if you have a response to it, is that a lot of people who win Writers of the Future, it has a unintended consequence. And I'll use a couple people as an example, like uh, Brad Bowyer, Mike Cole. Um, there's a handful of others that I can't think off the top of my head who won Writers of the Future like 10 years ago, like 10 years before they published their first novel and the writers of the future sale, like wiped out all of their eligibility for like best new writer awards. Mm -hmm. But you get your novel 
uh, out there within the John W. Campbell time frame. Uh, so you, so Riders of the Future did not mess up your clock. Are you excited about this? I am, yeah. I am, you know, I have my fingers crossed, but I'm not holding my breath uh, for obvious reasons. The, the thing about uh, workshops like Riders of the Future and the big heavy-duty workshops like Clarion and Wild Paradise and that kind of thing is there's sort of a known phenomenon where afterwards a lot of the attendees who go kind of stop writing for a while or slow down or uh, just sort of drift away for a little bit. And a lot of that, I think, is due to just sort of digesting all the information they get. Um, they're trying to start writing again with all this newfound information, and it's really hard to turn off your sort of inner editor or inner critiquer while you're writing um, after these kinds of workshops because you're thinking, well, okay, am I doing all of the things I just learned right now? And that can be paralyzing for some people. And some people just need a break from it, sort of recalibrate and then come back again. And honestly, some people don't come back <laughs> noticed, but for the most part, I think people do. So you, you wrote Steal the Sky before you went to Writers of the Future, right? Do you think if you hadn't finished it before you went, you would have had some sort of that impact when you came back? It's possible, um, but I did write another novel afterwards, so... So you're good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, is that other novel the sequel or another novel? Another series, actually. Are you going to sit on that for a while, or are you going to take it out? Well, um, I recently sent in a list of so I'm my agent for It's on the list of basically synopses for five different novels I had ideas of and told them where they were at, drafting the stage, outline stage, that kind of thing, and asked him to pick one. And he liked all of them, so he asked me for the first chapter of each, and I sent them to him, and he organized them in the order in which he wants them delivered to him. And that book is number two on the list. So <laughs> once I finished the one you picked for number one, I'll go back to that book and send it in. <laughs> I'd be like, Sam, if you just put that number one, I'll send you a whole one, a whole book. <laughs> you know, there's so many different kind of agents out there that we hear about. You know, there are some agents who are super hands-on and others who are more focused on just getting you a good deal. Um, I do. It seems like Jabberwocky's super hands-on with career and um, making sure that they're taking stuff out that they think is not just going to sell, but sell the best. Jabberwocky has been fantastic for me so far. I, I knew I'd like them the moment I met Sam really. I just liked him as a person. I didn't know he was an agent. So we, we got along great personality-wise. And I, I like the hands-on approach. I like their team effort. Um, when I have a question that maybe Sam quite, can't quite answer, he takes it to the group, and they have you know a little powwow. And Joshua always does the um, sort of like godfather of agencies thing where he'll step in if he thinks something needs to be said so <laughs> i became very impressed with what joshua does for his clients and what the agency does for his clients when i went to a barnes and noble with joshua and i watched him take copies of peter brett's book and march up to the sales clerk and say we paid to have these displayed in a different place <laughs> and he like forcibly had them relocate the books to the appropriate shelf that they were not on yeah, uh, and I was like, "That's that's an agent that's going the extra mile, right there." My first trip to Barnes and Noble, 
he went through and found all of his clients' books, faced them, and he definitely looks out for his clients. Uh, he called me right before the San Antonio World Con, and he's like, but he's like, Justin, can you drive me around to all of the Barnes and Nobles in San Antonio? And I was like, I guess. <laughs> so we went to every single Barnes and Noble within driving distance, and he did that at every single one. So, yeah, it was a lot of fun. So uh, you're going to Confusion here in uh, two weeks, which is hard to believe that it's come up that quickly. Where else are you going to be this year? Not confirmed yet, but probably, well, absolutely Worldcon. Um, Kansas City, possibly Phoenix Comic Con. I'm looking at, um, uh, well, FogCon here. That's our local con in the Bay Area. So it's about five minutes from my house. So I better show up to that one. Uh, <laughs> I was looking at uh, WesterCon too. So, and considering world fantasy. Yeah, I wouldn't notice. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway. All right. So, uh, Steel Sky is out, and we are very excited about it. Where can people find you if they want to learn more? Oh, uh, makeitokeep.com. And on Twitter, you are? Even of Blushy. It's B-L-U-S-H-I-E. Oh, my God. I, I totally forgot to even ask you about all your soap. <laughs> I still say you're just trying to get in the fight club. Uh, yeah, right? So, like, how... I, I'm just, real quick. Like, how, how much soap do you make? Uh, tons, literally. Like, where do you make it in your bathtub, or do you have, like, a facility that you make soap in? Uh, no, basically, I sort of reconverted um, a dining attachment in the kitchen um, for soap production. And moves, um, you know, like, the big stainless steel baker racks type situations to store it all and I have a room in my house that's converted over entirely to shipping. Shipping is actually the biggest footprint of what I do, time and space-wise. Uh, is it making soap, like, hard on your hands? It can be. Um, I wear chemicals, gloves, regardless. And, like, a mask? Yeah. Absolutely three millimeter mask. Does... hydroxide fumes are nasty. <laughs> Does Joey aid in soap making? He does, um, in that he moves, um, the, the quantities I make so that requires me to buy wholesale oils from the directly from the manufacturers, and those come in giant 50-pound cubes, and since that is half of my body weight, he moves those for me. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm fascinated by this process. Like, <laughs> it feels like these are, like, things that, like, are very industrial, and, uh, and it you is. It's very industrial. It's very scientific. Um, I, you know, make sure I comply with the FDA at all times. I have a, a variance with my local fire department to have as much sodium hydroxide on the property as I do. So they know if there's ever a fire at my house, it's a chemical fire. Come prepared. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. I, you know, has that certificate to drive that much sodium hydroxide around. Did you have to, like, go to, like, city council and ask for that? Wow. I'm impressed. And so do you, you, you just retail all of this yourself or do you send to retailers? I do a little bit. I retail through my website and through Etsy. I've been on Etsy for years. And I also do wholesale. And your website for that is blushy.com? Blushy.com, yeah. I'll tell you, Megan brought uh, chapstick for all of us at Worldcon in San Antonio, and it was a big hit. So, 
whenever I show up to a con that West, you always ask me where the web home is. Yeah, and of course, you're like uh, on my website where you can purchase it. <laughs> I've actually gotten to the habit of bringing some lists so that we can have some, so we won't pout at me too much. <laughs> oh, you you know Wes very well, I can tell. He's quite accomplished at it. Yeah. All right, well, that's cool. So you can go uh, buy Megan's book, Steal the Sky, and you can pick up some of her soap. Uh, do you have a soap that you would recommend to pair with Steal the Sky? Yeah, sure. Actually, I have a, um, a, a dust after rain soap, which is um, the based on the chemical petrichor, which some of you might have heard of from the Doctor Who episode, where um, the smell of dust after rain or petrichor was one of the passwords to get into the TARDIS. But uh, it's basically what happens is drought-resistant plants, which uh, steel sky is set in the scorched continent, which is a place that, from the name, you can tell is prone to droughts. But drought-resistant plants in a time of drought release a chemical um, called geosin that sort of keeps them from being eaten by bugs while they're in this drought condition and basically says, hey, I'm already, you know, having enough problems. Leave me alone. And when it rains, geosin mixes with the earth and the rain and creates a very specific chemical called petrichor, which creates the smell of dust after rain. And that is a soap. Perfume and candle I have made. Because I like that kind of thing. <laughs> no shit, Megan. That was a fantastic answer. That And I, I would just like everybody to know that was totally off the cuff and not planned. And, and Megan nailed that. So, you can go get a copy of Steal the Sky and the Dust After Rain candle to light. So you can uh, enjoy those aromas while you read the book. Get the right atmosphere for reading the book. <laughs> That's exactly. You know, like a lot of authors do the soundtrack for a book. Uh, yeah. Megan is taking it to another level. It's like aromatherapy for her, with her book. All right, Megan. Well, thank you for coming on Rocket Talk. This is a lot of fun. Well, thank you for having me. So here's the deal with our new segment here at the end of every Rocket Talk. I mentioned it at the beginning, but I have uh, pretty much moved on from being a full-blown book reviewer, doing this podcast and uh, other editorial work with Tor.com Publishing. But I'm never going to be willing to give up talking about books, critically and in public. I really miss it. But the truth is, I just don't have time to write more than a few long reviews every year. But I'm still reading a ton, so I figured, why not share here on Rocket Talk? So, my first book report, for a lack of a better term, will be on Stina Light's Cold Iron. I nabbed this during a sale that Saga Books was running, along with several other of their titles a few weeks ago. I also picked up uh, Lynn Nagata's second book in her Red series, and uh, Zachary Brown's Dark Side War, and I think even a few others. So I've got a lot of Saga titles coming up in my to-read pile. But uh, Cold Iron is a flintlock epic fantasy. It's about a conflict between what amounts to humans and something like a fey people who have various levels of magic, the most talked about of which is a kind of a command magic or the ability to manipulate others with their voice. The human versus magic people thing is really well done, though. It's got its own original mythology surrounding them as opposed to some Celtic knockoff. And uh, I don't want to give the impression to anybody that it isn't cool and original because it totally is. I think uh, Light does a tremendous job of giving her story a unique flavor. The main characters are a pair of uh, royal twins, Nels and Suvi. Uh, One is living the life of an exile as a soldier. Uh, That's Nels. And the other is in line to inherit because uh, her brother screwed up and got himself exiled into the military. Both of them are trying to 
focus on this actual conflict between their people and uh, and these more typical human types, while their enemies, namely their uncle, are more interested in the conflict at home, uh, trying to succeed his brother as king uh, in place of his uh, niece and nephew. As far as uh, epic fantasies go, Cold Iron has a lot to speak in its favor. Uh, the primary characters uh, are compelling and layered and interesting and believe it or not, genuinely likable, which is a nice change in epic fantasy for me um, these days where characters are either, let's be honest, whining shits or cold-blooded killers. <laughs> uh, so it makes Cold Iron a rather pleasant reading experience, which is something that, uh, you know, these days in epic fantasy, you get pretty angry at your characters because they're horrible people or annoyed with them uh, because they're waffling about their destiny or whatever. You know, Cold Iron strikes a nice balance. Uh, however, it's got some storytelling issues, namely um, with what I would call poor signposting. You know, uh, signposting is where an author uses textual clues to show shifts in time and, and really quickly center the reader on what's changed between the last time you saw a character and this time. Uh, the way the book is structured in sections, it focuses on each of these POV characters who then get several chapters in a row within their section before it shifts to another section and another POV. And then, of course, it loops back around. Uh, the end result is a series of really interesting vignettes. Uh, they connect, uh, but they don't totally fit together seamlessly. Uh, she makes some interesting choices about what to info dump and what not to info dump, which I don't always agree with. But overall, I think a lot of this structural stuff is done on purpose. Uh, to me, it reads like an author trying to do something different with a familiar form. You know, what's a new way to tell this epic fantasy story that we've kind of heard before? And that's ultimately what Cold Iron feels like to me. Light navigates uh, cool combat, magic, political machinations, romance. It's really got everything you want in epic fantasy if you're willing to spend a little time puzzling out the moving bits and filling in some of the blanks on your own. Overall, I, I definitely recommend it. I think it's worth checking out. It's a, a commendable addition to sort of the epic fantasy field, which has a, a lot coming out right now. In fact, in the next couple of episodes, I'm probably going to be talking about uh, Sam Sykes' The City Stained Red and Brian Stavely's The Last Mortal Bond, both of which are epic fantasies that have come out in the last uh, couple of months or, or weeks. And uh, and yeah, I think epic fantasy is in a great place, and Light's Cold Iron is a, is a great example of, uh, of the kind of work you can find out there. I definitely look forward to the, to the second and third books. Uh, she's got an interesting story going on, and uh, I, I definitely recommend folks check it out. Next week, we're going to have Mer Lafferty on the show talking about her magazine, which is recently launched, called Mothership Zeta. And as I mentioned a second ago, I'll be talking about Sam Sykes' The City Stained Red. We will talk to you then. This has been Rocket Talk. <laughs>